I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 59th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that those filled with the Spirit of God focus on salvation and reconciliation, just as Jesus brought salvation to reconcile us to God, not condemnation to the world for sin. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On this last Sunday in August, August the 30th, our lesson for the morning is the 59th episode in our sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ. Text is John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and the Bible says this. These things have I spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, <clears throat> thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, we have reached Jesus' last discourse to his disciples. The birth of the church is going to come at the cost of Christ's crucifixion, which will be precipitated by the Jewish establishment and also at the expense of the lives of the disciples who are going to be persecuted and killed by that same Jewish establishment. And Jesus does not want the disciples to be under misapprehension about the cost or the reward of being his followers, as he tells them in Luke chapter 22, verse 28 through 30. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. To receive great glory with God requires great participation with God. But everyone that thinks that they are participating with God is not necessarily godly. It is interesting that the moral law of Judaism 
and the moral law of Christianity are exactly the same. Those that worship in churches revere the same Ten Commandments as those that worship in the temple. But the difference between the church and the, temp and the temple has to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul explains to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 through 6, which says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not written with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And the difference between the old covenant of Judaism and the new covenant of Christianity of one of letter versus spirit. And in order to understand this perspective, let us first define spirit. The dictionary definition of spirit is the principle of conscious life, the vital principle in humans animating the body or mediating between body and soul. Our spirit is that part of our mental faculties that enables us to speak and make decisions. John explains this to us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in this verse, John equates spirits with prophets, as both spirits and prophets are charged to speak to us about the things of God. So our spirit enables us to develop ideas about which we can speak. And the lection continues, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Now, God, by definition, is the one that tells us how we should live. Some people, however, have the perspective of the spirit of the Antichrist, believing that Jesus of Nazareth is neither the Christ nor God, and that the New Testament record is the untrue product of the imagination of the men that wrote it. These people believe that we do not have to follow the instructions of Jesus of Nazareth, which is why John says that they have the spirit of Antichrist. Now, other people have the perspective of the Spirit of God, and they have made the decision to believe the biblical history that tells us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and have come to the conclusion that he is God and that we should follow his instructions. 
In John chapter 14, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, interestingly, a person can have the perspective of the spirit of Antichrist and still believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. Someone with the spirit of Antichrist may believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, an orator, and or a miracle worker, but the spirit of Antichrist keeps them from acknowledging that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and is God. And the Jewish leadership falls in this category. They knew about the miracles of Jesus. And after the resurrection of Lazarus, John eleven forty five through 48 records, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now, John eleven forty seven makes it clear that the Pharisees believed that Jesus of Nazareth was just a man. The Pharisees did not doubt that Jesus, having raised a man from the grave, could work miracles, but this fact did not dissuade them from plotting Jesus's death, as John eleven forty nine through 53 records, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is the expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation also, only rather, but also that Jesus would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, if the Pharisees had the spirit of God and actually believed in the lordship of Jesus Christ, they would not have been concerned about Rome. They would simply have depended upon Jesus Christ to safeguard the nation of Israel. God brought the nation of Israel out of, e Israel out of Egyptian slavery and could equally easily deliver Israel from the domination of Rome. However, since the Pharisees, and Caiaphas in particular, had the perspective of the spirit of Antichrist and did not believe in the lordship of Jesus of Nazareth, they developed an alternative plan for dealing with Rome, which involved the execution of Jesus Christ. And the spirit of Antichrist rejects the authority and power of God. God tells us in the A part of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But back in the garden, the spirit of Antichrist first spoke to the woman in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in these verses, the serpent, who is actually the Antichrist, does not try to convince the woman that there is no God, but rather that God is incorrect. God says that the wages of sin is death, but the Antichrist says you, you will not surely die. And interestingly, even though the spirit of Antichrist contradicts the warning of God that the wages of sin is death, killing and murder is the Antichrist number one tool. John 11.53 records, then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. And going back to the election of 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, the Bible says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The spirit of Antichrist rejoices when he sees the chance to kill, and he rejoices all the more when he can do so in the name of God. God, as the divine supreme being, is the arbiter of life and death. God gave us life in the first place and tells us in Hebrews 9 and 27 it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. But the spirit of Antichrist desires to usurp the power of God, especially as it pertains to death. The Antichrist loves the portion of the law of God that gives the judgment of death and is always looking for the chance to put someone to death because of the law, which is why Paul tells us that the letter kills. But the Spirit of God through the ministry of Jesus Christ brought a different perspective. As John chapter 10 verse 10 tells us, the thief, that is the Antichrist, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Spirit of the Antichrist is the Spirit of death. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. And we can see the differing perspectives of the two spirits, Christ and the Antichrist, in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1 through 6 tells us, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and Jesus sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So the spirit of Antichrist has captured a woman that has broken the law of God and the wages of her sin is death. Deuteronomy 22 and 22 clearly says, 
If a man is found lying with a woman married to an husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. So the woman has broken the law of God and is eligible for execution. The spirit of Antichrist holds her up before Jesus and asks him whether or not to carry out the sentence given in the law of God. And in his answer, Jesus does not contradict the law, but rather points out that if the law is universally applied, the woman will not be the only one dead as we are all eligible for execution. John chapter eight, verse seven and eight says, so when they continued asking Jesus, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, the reaction of those that wanted to stone the woman is shown, uh, showed that they received Jesus's message, as John 8, 9 through 11 tells us. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I would dare say that this episode inspired that Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, to write the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul could have been one of the Pharisees listening to Jesus that day. And while the perspective of the spirit of Antichrist in the Pharisees was one of self-righteousness and death, the perspective of the Holy Spirit is one of restoration and life, as Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the intelligence of God that is always looking for ways to bring reconciliation, meaning life, to man from God. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are given the perspective of God as recorded in John three sixteen and 17, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And those filled with the spirit of God focus on salvation and reconciliation, just as Jesus brought salvation to reconcile us to God, not condemnation to the world. For sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The woman taken in adultery in John chapter eight knew the law of Moses concerning adultery as well as did the Pharisees that asked Jesus whether or not she should be stoned. But the knowledge of the law of Moses did not stop the woman from committing adultery. The knowledge of the law is powerless to keep us from sin because as Romans 8 and 3 tells us, we live in sinful flesh. And if we look back at the example given in John 8, we can see that which Paul is saying in the next verses, Romans 8, 5, and 6, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Holy Spirit of God is the power that can redirect our thinking away from the things of the sinful flesh. The physical and emotional urges that led the woman into sin can be controlled by yielding to the Holy Spirit. The physical and emotional urges that lead us into sin can be controlled by our yielding to the Holy Spirit, which will change the way that we think. And if I, as I said earlier in this sermon, if you have the Spirit of God, you believe that Jesus Christ is God, meaning the divine supreme being, the architect of the universe, and the one that defines how we should live. Believing that Jesus Christ is God and having the spirit of God changes the way that you think. But the Holy Spirit did not only change the way the woman thought. The Holy Spirit also changed the way Paul the Pharisee thought and made him into a Christian that would not propose that the woman be stoned. The Holy Spirit called Paul, caused Paul the Pharisee to recognize that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit does not focus on the penalties in the letter of the law. The ministry of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to focus past the penalties in the law to the reconciliation of one another to God just as Jesus Christ did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. The Holy Spirit knows that we do not always keep the letter of the law. And he tells us in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit prompts us to be active 
in the reconciliation of the world to Christ. Let me give you a concrete example of reconciled relationships based upon the spirit of God versus a relationship based on the letter of the law. Listen to your wedding vows. Will you have this man or woman to be your wedded husband or wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love them, comfort them, honor and keep them in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, keep only unto them as so long as you both shall live. And the list five responsibility, those being to love, to comfort, to honor, to keep, meaning to minister to your spouse in sickness and health and to forsake all others, which means to maintain your marital fidelity. But listen to that which Jesus says in Matthew 5.32, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman that is divorced commits adultery. And out of the five responsibilities given in the marriage vows, only one, only the one about forsaking on all others, gives us permission to divorce our spouses. So what happens if one partner fails to love or to comfort or to honor or to keep? The law does not speak to these eventualities. If I do not commit adultery, I am keeping the letter of the law, even if I do not show my wife that I love her. But how do I stand with the Holy Spirit, which tells us through the lips of Jesus Christ in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if I only do the things in the moral law of God, I find once again that the letter kills as the marriage will die if I don't show my wife love whether I commit adultery or not. If I show love as the Spirit instructs me in John 13, 34, and 35, our marriage will not only live, but flourish. And as I have already noted, whether you keep the letter of the moral law of God or not is not the main focus of the Holy Spirit, but it is rather whether or not you are active in the reconciliation of the world to Christ. So although the admonishment to keep the law by not committing adultery is important, it is more important to the Holy Spirit that we love one another. Why? Because of our witness to others. When Jesus showed love to the woman taken in adultery, he made a much greater impression than those that condemned her. The letter of the law would have killed the woman but showing love gave her life and another chance to influence the world for Christ. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John 8 and 7 tells us, He who is, out sin, who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And these scriptures tell us that however well we maintain the letter of the law, the day will come when we will sin 
And if we condemn others for their sins, we will be condemned ourselves, much like the Pharisees that wanted to stone the woman. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, leads us to make a much greater impression on those in our sphere of influence by showing love to one another. Because Christian love draws people to Christ, as John 13 and 35 says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now in our text for today, John 16, one through four, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And Jesus is warning the apostles of the cost of being Christians. The spirit of Antichrist is dominating the thinking of those that enforce the law in the synagogue. God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, have devolved into self-absorbed, self-focused, self-righteous sinners that have completely forsaken the things of God. When the pagan Roman procurator Pontius Pilate looked at the record of Jesus Christ, he could find no fault with Jesus and was rather impressed with Jesus's personality during their interaction. But God's chosen people showed that the Antichrist had so taken over their thinking that they testified that they esteemed Caesar over God. As the Bible says in John 19, 12 through 16, from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Not against God, but against Caesar. Jesus has not broken the law of God, and the Jews cannot give Pilate any justification for condemning Jesus. The spirit of Antichrist leads him to just say anything, so they call upon Caesar. The lection continues, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. So the chief priest confessed that they have no king but Caesar. Not God, but Caesar. God is no longer part of the conversation in the temple because the Jews have been given over to the spirit of Antichrist, whose only goal is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. 
God's involvement in the worship in the temple will soon be ended at the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reiterates his warning to the disciples that he is going to be killed, but informs them that he is not leaving them without a counselor, but is sending his Holy Spirit to them. God's plan is that Jesus die as the sacrifice for sins and that the Holy Spirit takes over Jesus's teaching ministry to the disciples as John 16, 7, 13, and 15 tell us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take up what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And Jesus talks about his passion and death as he says in John 16, 20 and 22. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And the labor spoken of in John 16 and 21 is Jesus's passion experience. The birth is Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And once Jesus rises and sends the disciples, the Holy Spirit, the disciples will have joy that cannot be taken from them. But they will also have a responsibility to minister the gospel to the world. They will have the power to do so. As Jesus tells them in John 16, 23 and 24, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And just as Jesus prayed and God moved, the disciples will be able to see God move as they pray for that which will increase the influence of the name of Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus brought joy into the world by his miraculous power, the disciples will feel the measure of their own joy by their personal interactions with God. And as Jesus anticipates his passion and death, he also anticipates his resurrection and reunion with the disciples as he tells them in John 16, 25 through 28 and 32 and 33, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be our, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The disciples are about to undergo trials, tribulations, and failures, yet all of their failures are anticipated all of their sins are forgiven, and there is a remedy prepared for all of their deficiencies. Jesus is prepared for his lonesome journey and has prepared his Holy Spirit to minister to his disciples that they might carry on his salvific work once his journey is completed. And Paul describes the New Testament church of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And Jesus had laid the foundation of the church in the minds and hearts of the disciples. He has taught the disciples and given them examples to prepare them for the work of ministry and is sending them the Holy Spirit to empower them to do the works that he has given them to do. And as we prepare to listen to the final lessons on the sacrifice of Christ, let us also prepare to recognize the ministry of reconciliation through the Holy Spirit in our own lives and to love one another as he has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross that gave us a right and a just right to the tree of life. And we ask you, Lord, that you would continue to endow us with your spirit, that we might have in us the mind of Christ and be able to understand those things that the Bible teaches us, that we might conform our lives to the image and likeness of your word. And not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, because we know that the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask that you'd give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.